And hello once again. I am Dan Alasso. This is Making History. And in addition to telling you the story of my current employment situation, I want to continue telling you stories about history. And I thought this one was kind of interesting. This one is a story about the Illuminati in early American history, in the early Republic. And it's actually from a book that's over a hundred years old, a book called New England and the Barbarian Illuminati by Vernon Stauffer, 1918. And this is a very strange book about a very strange topic. And it kind of interests me a bit that Vernon Stauffer chose to write about it in 1918. Stauffer wasn't some cranky conspiracy theorist. He was a professor of New Testament and church history and a dean of what was called California Christian College which later became Chapman University in Los Angeles. A reviewer in 1919, who was also a dean of a college and was writing in a respected journal, said that this book was a work of admirable scholarship and excellent literary form. The website of the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon currently reprints the third chapter of this book as evidence against what they call the plot theory of history, which is basically what they call conspiracy theories. Since conspiracy theories have become very prevalent today, I've been thinking that it might be interesting to understand how Americans dealt with them in the past. So Stauffer begins this story by saying, on the morning of May 9, 1798, in the pulpit of the New North Church in Boston, and on the afternoon of the same day, in his own pulpit in Charlestown, the occasion being that of a national fast, the Reverend Jedediah Morse made a sensational pronouncement. He proceeded solemnly to affirm that the secret European association, the Illuminati, had extended its operations to this side of the Atlantic and was now actively engaged among the people of the United States with a view to overthrow their civil and religious institutions. Morse's audiences were apparently quite alarmed. Soon ministers were preaching, newspaper editors and contributors writing, and clear-headed statesmen like Oliver Walcott, Timothy Pickering, John Adams, and even the great Washington were inquiring and voicing their serious concern over the secret presence in America of the conspirators of the French Revolution, Stouffer said. He goes on to explain that the main source of this claim was not only a Massachusetts Puritan minister, but he was also an important character in the early Republic, in early American life. Reverend Jedediah Morse, who lived from 1761 to 1826, was the author of the first American geography and gazetteer. His connection with the leading men of the times, particularly with those of the Federalist Party, was both extensive and intimate, Stouffer said. His outspoken and unflinching support of the measures of government during the Federalist regime did even more to enhance his influence. He was also, incidentally, the father of Samuel Finley Breese Morse, the painter and inventor of the telegraph. In addition to exploring what motivated Morse, Stouffer's aim was to find the influences and events that, quote, predisposed the public mind favorably to the notion of a conspiracy against religion and government. And he asked, 
to what extent did the alarm affect the lives and institutions of the people of New England? Stover reports that a book called Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religions and Governments of Europe by an author named Robeson was the source of the rumor that Morse had amplified. He continues by outlining the undermining of Puritan standards and institutions, which he attributes to the 30 years of war that had been faced by the generation that, quote, emerged from the revolutionary struggle with the edge of its conscience dulled. Exacerbating this callousness was an interest in the world that precluded a retreat back into the ancient simplicity and seclusion. Stouffer mentions that the mores of the colonial past had been swept away and that Bostonians even had recently lobbied for a repeal of laws banning the theater, reasoning that while they could respect and venerate their renowned Puritan ancestors, it would be better if a veil was drawn over all their absurd prejudices, which, like spots on the sun, tend to be darken and obscure the otherwise truly resplendent glories of their character. In this, he's quoting from a contemporary pamphlet called The Speech of John Gardner, Esquire. He also notes that cider was an important local product, rum had been given to soldiers and laborers for years, and imports of wine were increasing. Drinking led to gambling and vice, especially among young men at college. He remarks that Yale College President Timothy Dwight dated, quote, the first considerable change in the religious character of the people to the French and Indian War. Dwight said, the people had begun to claim for themselves some relaxation, and hence to amuse and satisfy themselves in the light of their enlarged conceptions of the freedom and privileges of life. In addition to authorities such as Beecher and Dwight, Stouffer quotes extensively in a footnote from a passage by Warville in the recently published American History Told by Contemporaries. Stouffer suggests that the increased wealth of New England merchants, and perhaps the growing cohort of new New England merchants, increased the pressure on consumption and cultural stimulation. But was this lightheartedness and open-mindedness, or looseness of life and gross lawlessness. Discussing irreligion, he claims that the general impression of a revolt against morality and religion after the Revolutionary War was deepened by a bitterness of spirit which marked the last degrees of the long struggle to cut the bond between church and state. He doesn't say, however, who was bitter who had been revolting, or whether the impressions of deep-seated and widespread irreligion were in fact real, or whether they were a rhetorical device of the clergy. Presumably, he thinks this is outside the scope of this work, and he sort of takes these facts as given. After examining minute details of church history and denying that British writers had caused any perceptible infidelity in New England, with the exception of Thomas Paine, of course, Stouffer turns to the French Revolution. He notes that both John and John Quincy Adams had opposed Paine's interpretations of the events in France, but events, much more than political treatises, broke 
the French Revolution spell on Americans. Stouffer details the work of people like Tappan, Osgood, and Strong to equate republicanism with France and with infidelity. Washington's 1793 Neutrality Proclamation satisfied most people, but there were small groups that favored tighter alliances with either the French or the British. Stouffer associates democratic societies with Genet and the Revolution, and not at all with the recent fight over the Constitution or current fights over government policy. But he concludes that the torrent of anti-British feeling was a result of administration actions, including appointing John Jay as Minister Extraordinary to England. Washington's November 1794 speech connecting the democratic societies with the Whiskey Rebellion was carried in full by New England papers. But wasn't the Cincinnati also a self-created society, critics asked? Osgood's 1794 Thanksgiving Day sermon was yet another more extended and violent treatment of the societies that helped make it clear where the clergy stood. The name of Washington was above reproach, but New England newspapers went after Osgood and the other Federalist clergymen. The Independent Chronicle said that their influence has been as small as a bull from the Pope. And Jay's treaty turned the United States back into the colonies of Great Britain in the minds of a growing number of New Englanders. Accordingly, the New England clergy launched a fierce attack on Jefferson as the arch-apostle of the cause of irreligion and free thought. French privateers angered the merchants. Federalists believed that Republicans were compromised by loyalty to France. And to the delight of Morse and others, public opinion began to favor war. Morse's fast day speech was quickly followed up by Tappan and a little later by Dwight as well. All continued to target Republicans and infidel philosophy, whether or not they mentioned Illuminism. Dwight's July 4th sermon was titled, The Duty of Americans in the Present Crisis. The crisis, he mentioned, was the rise of, quote, the anti-Christian empire and the embarkation of men in a professed and unusual opposition to God and to his kingdom. Morris gave a Thanksgiving Illuminati sermon, expanding his claims and connecting Illuminism to Paine's Age of Reason. By this time, John Taylor in Deerfield, Massachusetts, was able to remark in his sermon on the good effect produced in the public mind by the fortunate discovery of a great secret conspiracy in Europe against all the religions and governments on earth. To make the unity of church and state completely clear, Pastor Nathan Strong of Hartford preached a Thanksgiving sermon on political instruction from the prophecies of God's word. These sermons were printed and distributed by the thousands throughout New England. In 1799, Congressional Chaplain Ashbel Green helped President John Adams draft an even more pious proclamation than usual. And in his April 25th sermon, Morse inaugurated a new motto to rally his followers behind. To counter liberty, equality, and fraternity, Morse offered vigilance, unity, and activity.
Morse also mentioned the French massacre of the crew of a ship called the Ocean in his 1799 Fast Day sermon. It was quickly pointed out by Republican papers that there was no ocean. The story had been a fraud, the papers announced, and Morse had believed it just as credulously as he'd believed the stories of the Illuminati. In September 1799, the American Mercury announced that Morse had suppressed a letter he'd received, which the paper had also received a copy of, warning him that his sources were unsavory and their testimony was a wretched mass of absurdities. The Bee suggested that since the days of Salem witchcraft, no subject had so much affected the minds of a certain class of people in New England as this pretended Illuminati conspiracy. Morse tried to defend himself by attacking American Freemasons, but the situation was becoming ridiculous. John Cousins Ogden published A View of the New England Illuminati, which accused Morse and Dwight of being the real conspirators and the real danger to the nation. In his conclusion, Stouffer neglects to mention whether there were consequences for Morse and Dwight, or what the effect of the hoax was on the credibility of ministers, especially those who had strayed into politics. Nor does he specify how much the Illuminati embarrassment contributed to the success of the Democratic Republicans in the 1800 election. But there were probably political consequences, and maybe even the beginning of a change in the ways some New Englanders responded to pronouncements from the region's pulpits. And I think I discovered some of those when I studied and wrote about people like the infidel body snatcher, Dr. Charles Knowlton. But that's all I have for you for now, so I hope you found that a little bit interesting. Thank you very much for watching. I will see you again very soon.